second day after the great tragedy in the movie theater that's known as the movie massacre, uh, I want to bring answers uh, to that situation with God's help. Take your Bibles, put them over your heart and say this with me. This is my Bible, God's written living word to me. Open my eyes, Lord, that I might behold wonderful things from your law. Amen. How can God allow this to happen? That's the real question, even for people of faith. And actually, that question has validity only when it's asked from a view of faith, a view of believing in God. That's really... What makes that question valid? Because if there is no God, then there is no philosophical problem with suffering. It's just the way it is. Life is tough. Life's not fair. If God does exist, but his essential nature isn't love, then why should an all-powerful being give a rip about what happens to you or me? Frankly, he has more important things to do. It's because God is real. It's because God is love. It's because God does care. That this question of how could God let this happen matters. And in fact, it's because God does care that the issue of suffering hurts in a way that seems to bring extra confusion and such deep pain, especially for those that embrace a living God. 
our instinctive reaction to suffering, in fact, is it's not right. This isn't fair. This is not how it was meant to be. How could God let this happen? It's what philosophers call the problem of evil. Now, Christ followers, of which most of you in this room are, I'm sure, often respond, yes, of course, God is good. But the skeptic or the person who's struggling with faith would ask, how could he allow such suffering and evil? How could he allow tsunamis? How could God let my brother die of cancer? Not, in fact, not only die, but suffer first and then die. How could my marriage fall apart? He could have stopped that, right? He, he could have intervened. Why doesn't God stop the human trafficking in little girls? The violence that's being acted out in the Middle East? The senseless killing of 12 innocent individuals attending the midnight showing of a blockbuster movie by a deranged madman armed with military-grade gear and weaponry. He could have stopped that. Doesn't he care? Where is God? Why is he silent? And we as Christ followers must prepare ourselves. The Bible's clear. To provide an answer in times like this. Where is God when life falls apart? Is he real? Does he love us? How do we know that? Does the Bible speak to this clearly? And be assured that the way you answer that question of suffering is going to determine your trajectory in life. I'm talking about your path your future progression, your line of development, theologically, spiritually, emotionally, how you answer this one question will absolutely determine your trajectory. How we answer this question will determine whether suffering and the unexplained pain and circumstances of life either drive you to God or drive you away from Him in bitterness. Let's deal with the theological first. Does God allow or cause suffering? Now, many Christians believe that he does. In fact, just yesterday, a Christian Bible teacher, actually, it, it, I listened to this just yesterday via the Internet. The sermon was delivered some six weeks ago, so completely unrelated to the events here in Colorado. And this Christian Bible teacher made this statement, and I quote, that God's saving love for us is completely compatible with him bringing about suffering and evil in our lives, end quote. I had to play it back several times to be sure I was listening to a Christian Bible teacher. Now, folks, this, this was not some fringe weirdo you know, in a Bible study of 20 people. This is a large church in Texas that actually has so many people that they've had to spread out in what's very common today, 
when churches grow to this size, campuses, as they call them now. This church has three different campuses located in different parts of the city. And this brother's teaching this. Listen to this from the same sermon. And I quote, We don't seek God when we're blessed. We seek Him when we're suffering and troubled. It's called the, quote, grace of suffering, end quote. I could not believe my ears. And yet I've always known theologically that there were people like this. I just hadn't encountered such a a strong, bold statement from the pulpit. And it went on. It went much further than this. In fact, he used the following text, Job chapter 2 and verse 10, which says, But he said to her, this is Job speaking to his wife, who told him, Why don't you just give up and die, Job? Job said, you speak as a foolish woman. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He is Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39 that says this, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. He used Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11 that says this, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And then he commented after each one of these and boldly made the statement, God is the one that makes people deaf. God is the one that makes people blind or that they're born blind. God is the one that kills individuals, that in tragedies, and he did not mention, once again, this was seven weeks ago, so he had no reference to Colorado. But were he delivering this statement this morning in his pulpit? And who knows what they are teaching this morning from that pulpit about Colorado's tragedy? I can only imagine that they are clearly telling their people, God caused that tragedy. God took the 12 lives, and God is working in that. Amos chapter 3 and verse 6 was another that he used. And it, it, it says this, and I quote, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? End quote. These are difficult scriptures to be sure. And in fact, our text this morning would seem to complement this idea that God not only approves of or allows, but actually initiates and causes suffering for some sort of weird cosmic purpose in our lives. So let's go to our text, Job's, I almost said Job's gospel. The book of Job in the Old Testament. Look with me. Job chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 1. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless. A man of complete integrity, he feared God and stayed away from evil. And he had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. And he employed many servants. In fact, he was the richest person in the entire area. Now, Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters and celebrate with them. When the celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would have to purify his children. He'd get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. 
For Job said to himself, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. Hello? How many of you know that Job's parenting skills have not left the earth? Many have been mentored by him. The fact is, what it doesn't quite say so clearly as you read, but certainly is implied and as you study from a number of translations is, his seven seven sons regularly were having drunken parties and orgies, including the sisters. And it was so bad, Job was so concerned that maybe they had cursed God and left their faith. And so every time they'd have one of these parties, he'd have to call all of his sons together and his, his three daughters and go through a ritual of cleansing and forgiveness. You think you have problems. Verse 6, One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser Satan came with them. The who? Excuse me, the who? The accuser Satan came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered, <clears throat> Satan answered the Lord. Excuse me. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord. I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have, and I want you to pay particular attention to this verse. You have always put a wall of protection around him. You have always put a wall of protection around his home. You have always put a wall of protection around his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, then. You may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses. But don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting, at the eldest brother's home, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys beside them, feeding beside them, and the Sabians raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Lucky you. Verse 17. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still... And you thought you had a bad week. And while he was still speaking, another message arrived with this news. Your sons and your daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home, and suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness, hit the house on all sides, the house collapsed, and all your children are dead. 
And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Now, folks, that's tragedy in the highest degree. And I want you to notice Job's response because it is at the heart of all who follow God and have a biblical worldview. This is and should be our response. So Job stood up. He tore his robe in grief. It's not wrong to grieve. But then he shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And then he said, I came from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I have and the Lord has taken it away. Praise be the name of the Lord. Now, did you notice in verse 10 that before there was any suffering, Job was blessed, favored, prosperous, walking in victory, living the abundant life. He loved God. God's own testimony about him was that he was a man of integrity, he was blameless, and he feared the Lord. Well, this Christian teacher on this broadcast that I listened to said that if you have that sort of condition as a Christian, that you're blessed, favored, walking always in victory, you don't want to serve the Lord. You'll fall away. So the reason God causes you pain and suffering is to bring you to a place where you'll serve Him and honor Him and not forget Him. Excuse me? That's not even the testimony of Job. Job loved God. Job... Job's, God's own testimony about Job was you cannot find another man in the earth like this man. And Job wasn't suffering. He wasn't sick. He was enjoying the good things. In fact, he was the richest person in the land. Now, what does that tell you about God's will? God isn't against you being blessed. God isn't against you having abundance and enjoying it. It isn't the lack of those things that causes you to worship God. It isn't the lack of those things that makes you holy or more reverent or gives you greater integrity. In fact, the testimony of Job is this. Whether I have those things or not, I am going to worship God. Then Job makes an interesting statement. And how many of you have ever heard this verse? Maybe didn't even know where it was in the Bible. You've quoted it. You've seen it printed. You've read it before in places or heard it preached on. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. I bet you've said that at some point in your life about some sort of tragedy or something you were suffering. Or I've heard people comically use that when even kicking their, their car tire, you know. <laughs> They're pulled off the side of the road and, well, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. I guess I just have to endure and not get to work on time. I mean, I've heard people talk about circumstances like that and quote that verse. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Now, may I say to you, listen to me carefully or you're going to miss something very important. I don't want you to go out of this building saying I said something that I did not say. You ready? Everything in the Bible 
is truly written, but not everything in the Bible is true. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. <laughs> I want to let that sit in. Let's just sink in there for a minute. Oh, yeah? How can you say that and be a preacher? Well, first of all, our own text is very clear that Satan is the one that brought all of the suffering on Job, not God. God removed his hand, but Satan authored it, correct? Verse 27, or excuse me, verse 12 of chapter 1. You'll see it again in verse 7 of chapter 2. Satan was the author of the evil that Job experienced, period. We can argue about the sovereignty of God that allowed it another time and not in this message. But Satan authored that suffering. Job's friends go on through the middle section of most of the book of Job to bring supposedly the word of God in correcting Job. And then God speaks up in the final chapters of Job and rebukes them and says, you are not right. Your theology is wrong. And yet everything they said was accurately recorded. But if you build theology, if you build your doctrine off of the book of Job and primarily all of those chapters in between where those friends of Job are arguing on behalf of God, you will have a mess of bad doctrine. And the Lord rebuked them and said, you are not correct. How about when Satan lied in the garden and said, you'll not die. Go ahead and eat. You won't die. That's truly recorded, but it wasn't true, was it? How about Balaam's false prophetic words promising that if they followed then the nation would be blessed. And of course it was all wrong. Truly recorded, but it was not truth. I submit to you that Job did the best he could with the revelation he had. He considered that even his present circumstances were given to him and dealt him by the Lord. But may I remind you of something? Except for the beginning chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Job, Satan is never mentioned in the rest of the book. Job had never heard of Satan. Job had never studied Satan. You see, we, we act like Job had one of these. <laughs> and for you listening to the CD, I'm pointing at the Bible right now. I'm holding a, a nice leather-bound Bible. How many of you know Job didn't have this? He, didn't, he, he couldn't read about Satan. He couldn't read about principalities and powers that we wrestle against. And it's a good thing that God did not give further revelation than he already had throughout the book of the Old Testament because it would have become for them another God that they worshipped. They were already worshipping enough gods without revealing his personal name of Satan. <laughs> So Job did the best he could, and he truly stated, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. But folks, that is not Bible doctrine. What's missing from all of these examples of doctrine and practice? 
the ones that this preacher gave, the four scriptures that I highlighted here from his message. The words of Job in verse 21. What's missing from all of these various examples and practice? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ's redemptive work on the cross. I'm going to make another startling statement. But you need to get this on the inside of you because, again, remember, what you believe about this subject is forever going to change from this morning forward the trajectory of your life. Most of the Christians in this room believe that the Old and New Testaments have equal value. Equal value. That all the Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, are exactly the same and have equal weight. And so, therefore, it is very common in our pulpits in America for erroneous doctrine to be taught, and most of it is taught and called from the pages of the Old Testament. And that's where we go wrong. Let me ask you something. What did Jesus say is the greatest commandment? He was asked, a Pharisee, someone who was well-versed in religious law, came to him and said, what's the greatest commandment? What did Jesus tell him? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your mind, all your soul, and all your might, and a second is like unto it, and of equivalent value, you shall love your as yourself. And then he said this, on these two, everything the prophets and the law taught are pinned. And if you follow these two, you fulfill all the rest of the law. Don't tell me that everything in the Old Testament has equivalency with the New Testament. It does not. It was written for our instruction, Paul says. And thank God we have it to learn of God's kingdom throughout the ages. To learn of Satan's fall. To learn of God's redemptive nature in the garden. To learn of how the prophets, one by one, prophetically, through their words, paved the way for the Messiah to come, to die on that cross, be buried and rise again. But listen to me, dear ones. The cross of Jesus Christ is the dividing line. Once Jesus died for my sin, once he went into that grave, and once he rose again, it changed everything in history regarding the, what you read in the Old Testament that could, one could conclude, God is a God of judgment and hate. He just is evil and he brings suffering. No one can teach that unless they misunderstand the revelation of the new covenant and the cross. Jack Hayford said, and I quote, Few realize that his suffering was more than merely a preliminary to his death. His suffering was redemptive too. And his suffering was substitutionary. He suffered in our stead, absorbing in himself the horrible implications of sin's impact on the human frame. 
In fact, the scripture says in Isaiah chapter 53, and again, Jack is still writing here, Pastor Hayford, and I quote, Surely he has borne our griefs, our sicknesses, our weaknesses, and our distresses, and he's carried our sorrows and pains of punishment, yet we ignorantly considered him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, as if with leprosy. Verse 5, and this is Isaiah chapter 53. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our guilt and our iniquities. The chastisement needful to obtain peace and well-being for us was upon him and with his stripes that he was wounded with. We are healed and we are made whole. Dear ones, listen. Say what you want about all the suffering and all the evil that we can read about in the Old Testament. We could argue the theology of what God allowed and didn't allow. But one thing is clear, even from the Old Testament. Satan is the author of evil. Satan is the author of suffering, not God. Then fast forward to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And the word of God proclaims, he suffered for me so I wouldn't have to. He died with my sins so I could be free from the penalty. He was wounded so that I would no longer have to bear the shame and the guilt of my own iniquities. And yes, he even suffered that shame and that wounding and all of the disease and the despicableness of sin and suffering and evil that came on him. He suffered it all so that I today might enjoy now in this life God's abundant living like Job had in chapter 1 like Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall you see it's a continuous narrative folks don't divide it up into these dispensations and come up with all this funky theology it's the kingdom of God you have to ask yourself what was God's original intent back in the beginning when he made that garden and put Adam and Eve in it, did he create it with suffering? Did he create any disease or sickness there in that garden? No, it was perfect until sin entered. And who brought the sin? Help me out. Who brought that sin? Satan. All right, let's be clear on this. Then we go to Job. And we're reading in chapter 1 that Job's condition was one of Blessing and health and goodness. He's the richest person in the earth. Or richest person in that part of the land anyway. That's God's purpose. That's God's will is for you to be blessed and to enjoy His creation. Now, let's suggest... That what you and I are dealing with today is still an issue with Satan's power. In fact, in the New King James translation, in chapter 1, when the Lord gives Satan permission to attack Job, it says, all that he has is in your power. Okay? Let's run with that. Let's say that we're starting from a place that in the Old Testament and, and now still current in the church today, God 
at least allows Satan to do things like bring suffering and evil upon us and oppress us through his power. You ready? Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Look with me, starting in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Who partook of the same things? Who partook of the same things? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the flesh or partook of flesh and blood. Who are we talking about? Jesus. That through death, what death? The death on the cross. He might destroy the one who has the power of death. Past tense. He had it, but he doesn't anymore. He used it on Job, but it's a power that Jesus on the cross destroyed. Are you getting this? Keep reading. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Wow. In fact, Job admits in the first two chapters that the thing he greatly feared has come upon him. Some have surmised that while Job was a blameless man who walked in integrity and enjoyed the great blessing of God, that internally there were some things working where he actually was fearing death. Maybe that opened the door. I'm not going to go there theologically. I don't care. Because even if the God of the Old Testament is a God of suffering and punishment and judgment and hatred... And he's just waiting for you to do something wrong so he can find you and squash you like a bug. That all ended when Jesus died. Jesus stripped Satan of the power of death and it was destroyed. Satan no longer has any power over my life or over your life as a believer. It matters not to me that he did in Job's life, he does not in my life. So do not go back to the Old Testament and from the book of Job stand in a New Testament church and teach the theology of suffering. You can't do it. Let's go. 1 John. Are we making a point this morning? 1 John chapter 3. Because you're going to see all kinds of things on the news, on the internet, in print, and yes, preachers in pulpits responding to the movie massacre of Friday night. You need to know your Bible. 1 John chapter 3, look with me at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, how much more clear could that be? You see, Satan, not God, is the God of this world. But we have overcome him. 
John chapter 12, verses 31 through 32. Listen to this. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus is speaking here, will draw all people to myself. How many of you know Jesus has fulfilled that promise? He was lifted up on a cross from the earth. He destroyed the power of the devil. And what God is doing now, dear ones, is drawing people to himself. Don't you dare get out of that chair and leave this building and go out there and begin to preach the theology of suffering and evil as coming from God. Preach a good God. Preach a loving God. Preach a God who cares. Preach a God who has destroyed the power of the devil. And watch as you just come alongside individuals who are not living for God, who are living lifestyles that are wretched and evil and ugly and, and you just kind of cringe when you get around it sometimes. You know what you need when that happens? You need more of the love of Jesus. Because it says that Jesus dined with despicable people. Some of you wouldn't dare go to the home of a gay person and have dinner with a homosexual. May I ask you why not? Oh, it's despicable. I just, I, I, I couldn't be there. I, I couldn't be around that sin. I wouldn't want that on me. Oh, really? How do you suppose Jesus healed all of those lepers? He had to touch them. What we need is a good dose of God's love. Because the Holy Spirit has come on all flesh. Not just Christ followers, but people who are not yet following God. And the Holy Spirit is working in every person's life, drawing them, drawing them, working in their life. And you know what the church has missed? Our best opportunity to win people to Christ through the means of coming alongside and encouraging what the Holy Spirit is already doing in their life, drawing them. God cares not if they're homosexual. God cares not if they're a thief. God cares not what their sin is. He loved you when you were in the middle of your sin and still loved you and drew you. We forget that. We forget that in the middle of our despicableness, God loved us while we yet hated him and he drew us. And it's no different. Where do you think that drawing started? You think that drawing started when the sermon was being preached and you got convicted and went forward and, and shook the hand? Don't you know that God for years had been arranging and drawing and working and manipulating and loving and putting all the pieces of that puzzle together to where that one day you walked in and you went forward and you shook the preacher's hand and you said yes to Christ? Don't you know that God had everything to do with that? And don't you know he has everything to do with that still today? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Who are we talking about? Well, not our Father. Not our Heavenly Father. Not Jesus Christ. We're talking about Satan here. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. People say that this massacre is unexplained. It is not. There's an evil one in the earth. 
there's a power of darkness. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Hallelujah! The only New Testament examples of suffering which are validated as examples of being biblically worthy of God's involvement and glory are those suffered as a result of public witness and a life sacrifice to share the gospel. Those individuals willingly laid down their lives for the propagation of the gospel and for snatching people from the jaws of Satan so that they might come into the kingdom of God. That's a suffering that God blesses. That's a suffering that God has everything to do with. And we read in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even until the death. When you find yourself in that place where you are suffering so greatly because of the precious love and life of Jesus that you're sharing with others to bring them into the kingdom of God, you will be able to fall on your knees and worship and say, thank you, God, for this suffering. But only then. You do not thank God for the sickness. You do not thank God for the disease. You do not thank God for the murder. You do not thank for, for God for what your children are going through. You don't thank God. You thank God through it, but you do not thank God for it. He did not author it. And by the way, may I just ask you, what, what in the world do the words of Peter and James mean? If, if God is just sovereign and he causes all of this and, and we have no say in it, then what in the world does the New Testament mean when it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you? Well, how are you going to know which part to resist? I mean, which part of your suffering and evil and so forth has God authored and he wants you to hang around and just be blessed by it and learn and grow? And which part are you supposed to resist? Let me show you. We can take all of life. Just take a piece of paper. You ready? Up at the top, draw, draw a line down the middle of the piece of paper. You ready? You can do this in your notes if you want to. Make two columns. Over here on the left, because he's a leftist. Just kidding. Write the, write the word Satan. Over on the right in that column, at the, up at the top, write God. Over on the left, under Satan, write destruction, death, sickness, disease, murder. Over on the right in that column, write blessing, favor, riches, goodness, peace, joy. All right, you got it? You got your two columns? Now watch this. Turn in your Bible. John chapter 10, verse 10. You there? Neither am I. I, I, I mean, what is so amazing is, is that it, it, it's like so much of Christianity simply has not read the New Testament. And I know where the real error, where the real crack in the foundation is. We have been taught that the Old and New Testaments are equal in value and in doctrinal treatise. And they are not. Jesus proves it further here. Look at verse 10 of chapter 10 of John. The thief 
comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. All right, pastor. So Satan is the author of evil and suffering. God doesn't bring it. Christ is victor over it all. He destroyed the power of the devil. We are no longer subject to that. So why were these innocents murdered? Why did my wife die and go to an early grave? Why does my baby have cancer? Why did my husband leave me? Now's our practical response to suffering. I gave you the theological response. Here's the practical one, and we'll be brief. This is not how it was meant to be. Number one, this is not how it was meant to be. God created a world where there was no pain, no suffering, no evil. All of that came as a result of disobedience. Number two, love requires the ability to choose. The reason we're free to disobey God is that we need to be free to love him if we are to be human and made in his image, the God who loves, by the way. Love can only be love if it's a free choice. Number three, God doesn't cause suffering, but he works through it. That's an important point. Number four, God himself suffered the ultimate pain to bring the only solution. Ellie Wisley famously saw a boy being hanged in a Nazi camp and asked, Where? I beg you, where is God? Only to realize that, quote, He is here hanging on this tree. God came as Jesus and died to break the power of sin. God really does care about suffering. I want to read something to you. It's from one of the individuals that was in Theater 9 during the movie Massacre. She was only feet away from that gunman. She's already published this on the Internet. Her name is Marie. She lives here in Denver. She titled it on her blog. She blogs regularly. This is the title. So you still think God is a merciful God? Maybe, just maybe, God spared my life because he loves you and he wants you to hear this. He wants you to believe that he loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son that if you would believe in him, you would have eternal life. So you still believe that God is a merciful God? Some of the comments online are genuinely inquisitive. Others are contemptuous in nature. Contemptuous in nature. Regardless of the motive behind the question, I will respond the same way. Yes. Yes, I do indeed. Absolutely, positively, unequivocally. Let's get something straight. The theater shooting was an evil, horrendous act done by a man controlled by evil. God did not take a gun and pull the trigger in a crowded theater. He didn't even suggest it. A man did. In his sovereignty, God made man in his image with the ability to choose 
good and evil. Unfortunately, sometimes men choose evil. I was there in Theater 9 at midnight, straining to make out the words and trying to figure out the storyline as The Dark Knight Rises began. I'm not a big moviegoer. The husband and I prefer to watch movies in the comfort of our own home, where I can use subtitles and get a foot rub. I don't like action movies, and I don't like midnight showings. But, as I wrote in my last post, parents sometimes make sacrifices for their kiddos, and I decided I would take my 14-year-old and 16-year-old daughters who were uh, uh, chomping at the bit to see this eagerly anticipated third movie in the Batman trilogy. Twice I had the opportunity to back out, and twice I was quite tempted. But something in me said, just go with your girls. And I did. So I was there with them fidgeting in my seat some 40 or 50 feet away from the man with the gun. It's still a bit surreal, but I do know that when the seemingly endless shooting started, as my girls were struggling from what, whatever gas or chemical, chemical had been released, and we figured out what was happening, we hit the floor. I threw myself on top of my 14-year-old, who, uh, who was on the end of the row, straight up the aisle from the shooter. In that moment, as the rapid-fire shots continued, I truly thought I was going to die, and I realized that I was ready. I have put my faith in tr and trust in Jesus Christ as the Redeemer of my soul, and there wasn't the slightest doubt that I would be received up into heaven, not because of anything good that I have done, but because of His merciful nature and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Still, as I lay over my daughter, I begin to pray out loud. I don't even remember what I prayed, but I don't imagine it really matters. I'm sure it was for protection and peace. It drew me closer into the presence of God. When there was a pause in the shooting, people began to clamor for the exits. The girls and I jumped up and joined the masses. We had to step over a lifeless body, not knowing where the shooter was. We raced our car, and I dumped my purse frantically, searching for the keys, looking all around, prepared to hit the ground. I yelled to Michelle, and I called to Matthew to find out or I, I, I yelled to Michelle to call to Matthew and find out if he had made it out of the theater door. She did, he did, and we booked it out of there. Why would you think such a tragedy would make me question the goodness of God? If anything, both of my girls said it made him a much more real presence to them. The youngest shared this verse. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will help your feet from being caught. He is not the cause of evil, but he is the one who can bring comfort and peace in the midst of evil. It's been amazing to see the outpouring of love from so many people after this unthinkable act. And yes, there was one evil act but it is being covered by thousands, possibly millions of acts of kindness. We have not yet slept, so the girls and I have, uh, are overtired and a bit emo uh, emotional, but overall, we are praising God and resting in His goodness. I love the word of His wisdom. God is always good. Man is not. Don't get the two confused. We will continue to praise and worship our mighty God, anticipating that he will bring beauty from ashes in a way that only he can do. Isn't that amazing? Dear ones, when Christ died on that cross, he not only destroyed the power 
of darkness and evil for every Christ follower. But he's the one that makes hope possible in the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of the worst suffering and tragedy. Jesus powers into those circumstances for you with his love and with his goodness. That's where God is. He is not silent. He is with you. He will be in the middle of your tragedy. I don't know why tragedy happens. I can't explain all suffering. But I know this. My God does not cause it. My God does not author it. He put his son on a wooden cross to destroy its power. And now, through his love and through a Christian body worldwide known as the church of Jesus Christ, he powers in to my worst circumstances and offers me grace and love and deliverance. So please, when it seems like you're in your darkest night, do what Job did. Fall on your knees and worship. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to give chapter and verse. You don't have to know why. Fall on your knees and worship. Now for the rest of us who may not be going through tragedy but know somebody who is, please understand, and this is from the book of Job, that in chapter, jo- uh, chapter 2 of Job, that when Job's three friends arrived, when they first got there, watch this, they looked at Job. He was so disgusting so messed up by boils and flesh-eating bacteria, they couldn't recognize their friend Job, the Bible says. You know what they did? All three of them just sat down with him on the floor in his ashes and for seven days said nothing. That's what even Job records. That is often our best response for somebody that's in tragedy or suffering. Just go sit with them. Be a friend. Say nothing. Don't offer any explanations. Where they messed up is they started to offer all of the explanations and they didn't have their theology right. So until you get your theology right, shut up and just be with them. Stand to your